Reach high, for the stars lie hidden in your soul. Dream deep, for every dream precedes the goal. That is a quote by Langston Hughes. Welcome to Trina Talk. Trina Talk is a weekly podcast that will inspire and empower women of all ages to strive for the impossible. Your host, Trina L. Martin from TrinaMartin.com, is a motivational speaker, leader, and cybertech expert. Every week, Trina will share wisdom gained from her life experiences and lessons learned while pursuing her goals to inspire you to achieve the next level in your life. Now, your host, Trina L. Martin. Hello, welcome to Trina Talk. I am your host, Trina L. Martin, and this is episode 29. The topic this week is overcoming trauma. My guest this week is Jennifer Whitaker. Jennifer is an empowerment strategist. She works with clients who are feeling stuck and underwhelmed by typical mainstream modalities. Jennifer has studied lifelong effects of trauma and abuse and she has discovered several tools and techniques that work well for overcoming these effects that often hold us back in life. She has also studied at the Body Language Institute and has learned how powerful body language can be in relationships of any kind, work relationships, familiar relationships, intimate relationships, and even brief encounter with people you meet in public. Jennifer uses all these tools and techniques to help her clients explore the depths of themselves in order to affect change in their lives. Hello, Jennifer. Welcome to the show. Hi, Trina. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for having me today. Well, thank you for um, being here out of your busy schedule. Um, So you have a podcast as well, and it's called Yes And, Mm -hmm. and you also, you're an empowerment strategist. Yes. Tell me what that means. Uh, Empowerment strategist is um, kind of a title I gave to myself. Uh, And the reason I came up with the name empowerment strategist is because I had worked uh, or tried to work with coaches several times. And what I came across with several life coaches is they were trying to use protocols on me. So it was whenever we get together the first time, this is what we'll do. And then the next meeting, this is what we'll do. And then the next time, this is what we'll do. And I kept thinking, well, that's not really what I want, nor is it what I need. I'm looking for something a little bit different. And my program, uh, the Empowerment Strategy Program and the way I work with clients is similar to coaching. And at the same time, it's highly customized. So with every client that I work with, Before we ever sign a client practitioner agreement to work together, I do a 90-minute consultation call free of charge, um, and that gives the client and me both an opportunity to choose to work with each other. I can assess whether the client uh, has um, issues or problems or something to resolve that is within my skill set. And it also gives the client a chance to get to know me to figure out if I'm a practitioner that they want to work with and that they can work with. Um, so that's a big step um, in the program. So we can choose each other. And then once we get into the program, 
again, it's highly customized. So I, I divvy up my time differently for each client. I have some clients that are like, hey, can we just meet an hour once a week? Or other clients might say, can we meet a little bit each day in the beginning? You know, like maybe 15, 20 minutes, just touch base. And so there are different options in how we can divvy up the time and really, really customize the program for the client so they can get the most out of it. And what I work with is clients who are feeling stuck, uh, like they're spinning their wheels, they're in overwhelm, they're self-sabotaging, they have all these great ideas, they, they're not sure um, how to stop shooting themselves in their own feet, so to speak, so they can move forward in life. Um, because I'm a trauma specialist, and a lot of times those self-sabotaging behaviors are rooted in trauma, and I can help to renegotiate the nervous system so we don't react and trip ourselves up like that anymore. Okay. Now, that's one of the things that drew me to you is the fact that you're an empowerment um, strategist. Mm -hmm. And here on, on my show, that's what I look to do is empower specifically women, but the information that I'm putting out can go to women or men, mm -hmm. um, motivating and inspiring. But what I like what you're saying is you work with people, you say that feel like they're overwhelmed. Yes. Now, what are you saying? Because I see you work with people of, of abuse and trauma. Now, mm -hmm. are the physical abuse and trauma or are they um, like verbal, mental? What's your, your scope that you deal with? Um, the scope that I deal with, uh, and, and it could be, anybody could have, who knows what their background is. I don't work with diagnosable conditions. So I work with like generalized anxiety, generalized depression, um, suicidal ideation, but not somebody who's actually putting a plan in place. And the suicidal ideation is somebody who's just kind of indifferent whether they're here or not. Um, it's like, eh, whatever. If I go to sleep and I don't wake up, whatever. Um, I think, and I think that's, I think that's more common than people are willing to talk about. Um, it, it's almost part of the human condition. And it's also something that can trip us up at, trip us up in life. Um, I work a lot with what's called psychological or emotional injuries. And that does come from the hidden forms of abuse, uh, a lot of times verbal and um, emotional abuse and neglect. And sometimes in early childhood, psychological and emotional injuries have nothing to do with abuse whatsoever. It's an injury that we, an, an invisible injury, because there's no bruise, there's no cut, there's no scar. It, it's an injury that we can incur when the child perceives a situation very, very differently than the adult, do, the adult does. And a lot of times there's no intention for harm, but the adult doesn't realize how devastating it is for the child in that moment. And that really just imprints in our central nervous system. And often it causes us to uh, create coping mechanisms and behaviors that we normally wouldn't in order to stay um, in favor with our parents. Um, because little kids easily go into the um, attitude Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I think I'll go eat worms. It's either or. It's like everybody loves me or everybody hates me. Kids don't have the capacity to see the black and white. Or sorry, they don't have this, the capacity to see the gray. They can only see the black and white when they're really young. So if a child is perceiving that, oh my gosh, my parents hate me, regardless of what the situation is, they're going to modify their behavior so they can get back to the perception, I want my parents to love me. Um, and mm -hmm. that's the type of stuff I work with. And a lot of times people don't even realize that that 
can be feeding into their behaviors. Um, and it's a lot of times it's a lot of conversation and a lot of questions. I ask a lot of questions. <laughs> you know, that's, that's very interesting what you're saying. Um, because I kind of self diagnose myself as being one of those trauma, um, people who went through trauma as a child. Mm-hmm. I had a, a very verbally abusive mother. And for years, it, it really, it really played on me, it played on my self-esteem, it played on my self-worth. And finally, I had to kind of, you know, work myself through it. And I did go to therapy as well. Mm-hmm. But can you also touch on the effects of whether it's verbal abuse or whatever you're seeing and how that plays into um, a person's life? Because you said people self-sabotage. Mm-hmm. What kind of things are you seeing? Um well, there, there are a lot of parts to that question. <laughs> um, so with, with verbal abuse, what often happens with kids, um, whenever there's verbal abuse, the, the kids will, um, again, try to stay in favor with their parents. And this goes back to some of our primal instinctual, um, just our instincts, our survival instincts. Because when we're little, if our most important guardians in life, usually our parents, sometimes it's adopted parents, sometimes it's grandparents, whoever our legal guardians are that are supposed to protect us, instinctually, um, we just know that if we lose attachment to our caretakers, we're not going to survive because little kids um, can't survive on their own. And that's true for all mammals and birds. We need adults to help us survive through childhood. And for adults, that's a longer period of time. So we will modify our behaviors and it's easier for the child to come to the conclusion that I'm unlovable. It's easier to come to that conclusion than it is to conclude um, that my parents, um, my parents are really crappy people and they don't know how to take care of me because that is a life-threatening situation. And mm-hmm. when I say conclude, I want to be really clear. I'm talking about uh, the subconscious mind making this conclusion. It is not our cognitive brain. And a lot of times when kids come to these conclusions, they're so young that the cortical brain isn't even done developing. So the mm-hmm. only thing online is our subconscious mind at that point. And, you know, there. It, it's believed that kids pretty much live in the hypnagogic state for about the first seven years of life, um, just because our cortical brains are not formed enough for us to have like conscious, um, higher level orders of thinking. You know, prior to age seven, eight, we can start to get into more complicated levels of thinking about then. Um, and then, yeah. and then you said, how does that look um, when we bring these behaviors into adulthood? let's say, um, you know, at two years old, something happened and your subconscious concluded that you're not worthy and you're unlovable. That's very common for a lot of us. Whenever we come into adulthood, that will play out over and over and over. So let's say, you know, you get into a relationship with somebody you really like in the first few months, you've got this honeymoon phase and everything's great. And then you start to see little bits of dysfunction. Then there's this one night where, you know, your, your partner decides that, you know, he wants to go out with his friends instead of spending the night with you. And he kind of lays this news on you at the last minute. And all of a sudden your perception is, oh my gosh, I'm being rejected. And your subconscious mind feels like it did when you were two. 
when you came to the conclusion that my parents don't love me and I'm not worthy. And so you see somebody who is giving you that same perception. And the next thing you know, you're in an argument. Well, well, you didn't tell me. And why would you change our plans at the last minute? Or who knows how that argument could go. Um, but it's the knee-jerk reactions when we get into those arguments. Um, and a lot of times we have behaviors. And most people know their bad behaviors. They're aware to some extent that, wow, I'm in the circular argument again. Or I'm doing this thing again that I said to myself I'd never do. And those are our reactive behaviors, and they really do get imprinted in our central nervous system, and our subconscious mind just kind of takes over because that's our autopilot. And next thing we know, we're just knee-jerk reacting, and it takes a little bit of renegotiating the central nervous system to get that reactiveness to calm down so we can let our, our adult mature mind interject and start to change the pattern and change the habit. Hmm. You know that. I mean, I, I I see myself in in everything you're saying, so I totally can relate. Um, so when you when you get patients, do they realize that this is what their issue is, or is it something that you talk them through? Uh, when I work with people, um, when people come to me, they already have a level of awareness that something is off or they have an awareness of their patterns. Um, they might not have a full awareness of what all their patterns are. And I don't think any of us ever do at any moment because our subconscious mind is 95% of who we are and our conscious aware mind is only 5%. Um, so there's so much stuff that's just kind of written into our own unique individual operating systems. And, um, so it, it's helping people learn to become aware of their patterns. Like, how do you know? How do you become aware of it? And so I help people from a somatic-based approach um, help people get in touch, first of all, with sensation. And it's amazing how many people I've worked with over the years who can't identify sensations and emotions inside their own body. When I ask people, how are you feeling? If you check in with yourself, what are you noticing? How are you feeling? You know, Tell me what sensations you're experiencing. And they'll come back and say, um, I feel betrayed. Um, well, that's a perception. That's not a sensation. So it, sometimes it can be talking in circles to get people to identify a sensation going, okay, I feel this um, hollow feeling in my chest or I feel tightness in my shoulders and neck. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. Now we're getting this sensation because that is you communicating to yourself minute by minute by minute, even second by second by second. Every moment, whether the situation is a resonant match for you or not, you're always giving yourself feedback um, from the environment. And, and we guide ourselves through our emotions and sensations on how we need to respond. And because we're not taught how to work with this ever. We're taught from a very young age that we need to stuff and compartmentalize our emotions, not express them, um, and certainly don't pay attention to them. And, you know, how many of us had parents who thought this intuition stuff was just silly? <laughs> you got to mm -hmm. think, you can't be intuitive. And that intuition, those gut feelings, um, that, that's another way we communicate with ourselves and tell ourselves minute by minute whether you know, this is the right thing or the wrong thing for us in that moment. 
And that's what I help people do is learn to identify those, those sensations, help people figure out what those sensations mean and those emotions mean when they show up. And then we can start to interpret the feedback from our bodies and it helps us be more confident. It helps us be more decisive because we're using our own, I call it our own unique life GPS system because we are, we're like giant GPS devices <laughs> that are interacting with the environment and you know, kind of navigating our way through life. And I help people learn how to figure that out for themselves. I love that. I love that we're our own GPS system. Mm -hmm. Just, yeah, that's, you're hitting the nail on the head there. And you sound very passionate about this. How did you get started in, in doing this? And what did you do before this? Or has this and what you've been doing your whole career? Uh, no, I have not been doing this my whole career. <laughs> um, I, I grew up uh, in a household um, similar to yours. Um, both of my parents were abusive in very different ways. So my baseline sense of normal and the types of behaviors that I was willing to put up with in my life was just utter chaos and craziness. And my mother taught me, um, well, my, this is what my mother did when I was a kid. Um, she, she was neurotic, anxious. Those were, you know, neurotic was the words that we used back then, you know, in the seventies. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know that she had an official diagnosis. I don't remember. And my mom has passed, so I can't even ask her if she had a diagnosis at this point. Um, anyhow, it was really hard to get her attention because she was wrapped up in her own world. She had a lot of her own struggles that she was dealing with. As a child, I didn't understand that. I just knew I was hungry and I needed lunch um, or you know, there was something I needed as a little kid and I couldn't get it myself. So I had to ask her for help. And it was hard to get her attention. And a lot of times in order to get her attention, I would have to act out to do it because I couldn't just say, hey, mom, I'm hungry. Can we get lunch? that usually didn't get a response. <laughs> so I would have to act out or get her attention in a much bigger way, which usually meant that I got paddled, I got yelled at, I got in trouble. And then about 10 or 15 minutes after this happened, she would come in my room or wherever I went to hide and go pout and cry. And she would hug me and coddle me and cuddle me and say, oh, honey, I am so sorry. I didn't mean to hurt you. I promise I'll never do it again. And just, you know, make over with me. And so I learned from a very, very young age, then in order to get what I needed to survive, which could be food or clothing or shelter or whatever it was, but in order to get my needs met, I had to get yelled at, I had to get hit, I had to get punished or get in trouble before I could get love and get what I was actually needing. Mm. And I took that behavior into adulthood with me. So mm -hmm. I was, my, my, boyfriend that I had in high school. Oh my gosh, what a disaster that relationship was. <laughs> and the same thing, you know, with a lot of my young adult um, relationships, even into my, um, and I shouldn't say just young adult. I mean, th this pulled into my early forties, even with, with some of these really dysfunctional relationships where if I was with somebody who was really, truly a nice, kind person, I had trouble being with calm, nice, kind people because that nice and calm in my house was the calm before the storm. So 
you're sitting there in the quieter it gets and the happier people are, you're like, oh, shoot, what's coming up next? And then you start to get jittery because you know things are going to blow up because that was not sustainable in my childhood home. So I got to a point in adulthood where if it was too quiet and too calm in a relationship, I'd pick a fight. I would cause drama because that was my normal and that was my comfort zone was the drama. And I got to a point where I couldn't do it anymore. (laughs) And so I just kind of stepped back out of relationship, took a lot of time, like years without dating anybody and kind of got myself together and got my own stuff together. Um, And you asked what I did before this. Um, I was an accountant for several years. Mm-hmm. Hated it. <laughs> um, my uh, my father really, really, really strongly encouraged me to get a useful degree if I wanted him to pay for my college, and so I asked him what was useful, and he said accounting seems useful. Um, so I double majored. I got the degree I wanted, um, which was English, and I got the degree he told me I had to get if he was going to pay for my school, which was accounting. And then I went back and got a master's in education. I have work experience in all three of my degrees, um, and I didn't like it. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I mean, those those were when I was a teacher, when I was an accountant. You know, I, I I started as an accountant, then I went into teaching, and it just wasn't wasn't my thing um, to to work in the school system, to sit behind a desk. And back in two thousand eight, um, I got noticed that I was going to be laid off from a job. And um, I ended up quitting a month before the layoffs happened. They gave us a whole quarter notice, which was which I was grateful for. They didn't lay it on us at the last second, so it gave us a chance. And I ended up switching careers, and I got my license as a massage therapist. Um, very quickly, started studying myofascial release therapy at, once I got my license, and I ended up being re-traumatized, which catalyzed um, complex post-traumatic stress in adulthood for me because I was re-traumatized by therapists who had really good intentions and they were sweet people. They didn't know diddly squat about trauma. And at that point in my life, I didn't either. And so I started searching for trauma-based therapies where I could become a trauma-informed therapist myself because I didn't want to do to other people what had been done to me. And I was realizing that what was done to me was done in unintentionally. And I didn't want to be that person who unintentionally just, you know, was like pig pen <laughs> from the peanuts mm-hmm. going around leaving a trail of, you know, <laughs> mess everywhere I go. <laughs> And that was when I discovered somatic-based therapies. So I went through Peter Levine's somatic experiencing program, um, not fully finished with that. And as a body worker, um, combining the trauma-informed work with a body-based type of therapy, which there's touch involved, uh, it's just a natural, perfect fit. It really is. And it's... um, one of the reasons that I've started to pull together this program and I've done other trainings as well. Um, NICABOM, um, oh gosh, I'm going to forget what it stands for. Um, the National Institute for the 
NICABM for the Clinical Applications of Behavioral Medicine, I think is what Nicobon is. It's where psychologists go for continuing education credits. Um, I've done several of their CEU trainings. Um, I just am not a psychotherapist, so I don't pay the extra amount to get the CEU credits, but I pay for the classes and I get the information and I study the information. Um, and, and it's helpful. It's informing. I don't work as a psychotherapist. I work, um, probably more, um, you could equate me more to a coach than a therapist. And the difference between a coach and a therapist is with a therapist, there's a power differential. Um, the, the therapist is, a little higher on the hierarchy than the client usually in those situations because you're going to a therapist and you know it's and so with a coach or a strategist like me we're on the same level and so it's more like having an accountability partner having somebody who's already walked through the winding path in the forest who's been there a few times and who knows the way and it, so it's more like a guide or um, somebody who's more on your level without there being the power differential, if that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Wow. Now, when you were doing your research um, for the trauma aspect of it, did you find that there were many other people who are doing with you, what you're doing now? Um, I've, I've met other people in the classes. Um, when I go out in the world and I'm not in a class with other people taking the same class that I'm taking, um, I, I see it minimally. I would love to see more and more and more people become trauma informed. Um, because it's, I think trauma and, and when I say trauma, I do want to clarify when I use the definition, when I use trauma, I'm not using the definition of Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall, he's broken in a million pieces, and he ends up in the ER type trauma. I'm talking about the lifelong effects of trauma, and the trauma I'm talking about is not about the event. It's not about mm-hmm. what happened to you. It's about what happens inside of you as a result of what happens to you. Right. And so that's the type of trauma I'm talking about. And I really wish we had more people who were trauma informed um, because a lot of therapists um, and I did this myself. I would go into the room with a client when I was doing myofascial work and I would know what I was going to do. And I knew better. I knew that, you know, we needed to be curious, but my clients would come in and they would tell me how they were feeling that day. You know, we would check in and I'd be like, Oh, okay. I know where we need to go. And there's still ego and there's still agenda in that. And I really had to take a big step back and stop doing that because as soon as you approach somebody healing this type of wound, like an emotional injury or an emotional wound, as soon as there's an agenda, that subconscious mind can pick that up and then it breaks the safety between the practitioner and the client and healing cannot occur if there's an agenda, if there's judgment, if there's... Um, this pushiness of, I know where this needs to go rather than let's figure out how to do this together. So I've really learned a lot from all of the different classes that I've taken. You know, I feel a lot like you. I feel that there should be more people who are um, tuned in, like you said, to the aspect of trauma. And I knew exactly what you were, Mm -hmm. uh, what you meant by trauma, Mm -hmm. because I have been, when I was dealing with my trauma, 
I've gone to therapists and like you said, there's judging or it's okay. Yeah. Read this book. And I'm going, that's not exactly what I need. I don't, I don't need to read this, this book on, you know, the seven ways to be happy. Mm -hmm. That's, that's not what I'm looking for. I need it. I needed you (laughs) actually. And like you said, therapists, they just, they don't, they don't know, I guess, how to handle it or what to ask, but they're on that path of, okay, this is, and it's funny because I could sit and I could see the judgment on their face Mm -hmm. as, as I'm talking and saying, well, you know, this is kind of how I'm feeling. Um, You know, I believe this, this, and this. And basically it's almost like I, you know, treated myself. (laughs) It's almost like I counseled myself. Mm -hmm. Um, because yeah, they, you know, oh, well to complete this exercise or do this. And it's like, yeah, that's, that's not what I'm looking for. That's not exactly what's helping me. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I totally understand what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. And, and I was listening to you as you were talking about your upbringing and I was thinking the same thing because I went through such a verbal abuse growing up. And it's something that I have recently kind of just realized that, I've blocked most of my childhood out mm-hmm. except for some some key times um like you know when I was in second grade I almost died I I remember that vividly mm-hmm. um just a couple other times like I don't remember birthdays or christmases or things like that anything being um just fun or loving because I never experienced that mm-hmm. and because of that I remember growing up saying you know I I want somebody to love me. I want somebody to love me. Well, because I had that need, I ended up in all these toxic relationships mm-hmm. where I was being abused and and you, and you know you're being abused and, and disrespected, but you're kind of like, oh, okay, well, you know, it's going to get better or, or whatever. And then you just stay so you can't stay anymore. And I, like you, I finally said, you know what? I'm, I'm done dating. I'm just going to be in tune to myself and work on myself and get things, you know, within me worked out so that I can be the person that I need to be for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And whenever you grow up in that type of environment, it is really not easy for a child that is accustomed to that day in and day out and day in and day out, just magically to turn 18, graduate high school, and then just step into adulthood as a normal, well-balanced person with, you know, a healthy emotional quotient, a healthy mindset, um, you know, just healthy all around. It just doesn't happen because this is stuff that we learn in life. And Western society, in many ways, reinforces the trauma everywhere we turn. And it's no wonder when I look around our society, um, it's no wonder that we have epidemic levels of depression and epidemic levels of anxiety and um, mental health issues. Um, I don't like mental illness because I don't believe it's illness, um, nor do I believe it's abnormal. Um, Because right now, the way our current psychological model is set up, everything is a pathology. Doesn't matter what it is. Oh, you do this, then you know you've got this disorder. You do that, you've got that disorder. And what we're what what they're realizing with some of the research that's done is these are normal coping mechanisms that everybody does. 
they're very normal. It's just we don't see them as normal coping mechanisms. We look at emotions as pathology and emotions are not pathology. We really need to learn to work with our emotions because I believe our emotions are a superpower. Mm-hmm. Because once you start to realize what your emotions are trying to do for you, let's say you're in a situation and you get that little flash of anger and heat that rises up from your core. That anger is communicating to you that, wow, something in your environment has just crossed the boundary and you need to do something. You know, usually anger is a call to action. Doesn't mean that it's a call to control your behavior and go into some angry behaviors and, you know, tear things up, not that type of behavior, but it's a call to action to set a healthy boundary and to get to get back to that place where you you know you don't have that heat and that anger coming up from your core and you feel good again. And because we don't know how to interpret that and we don't know how to work with it, more often than not, it comes back with a biting, cutting comment um, or you know smart aleckiness or sarcasm or sometimes people really do just blow up and you know snap at people. You, you know, we see videos every day viral videos going around of somebody just losing it in public at a clerk or a waitress or something like that. (laughs) These people don't know how to control their emotions. They were probably hugely traumatized in childhood and they have no idea. They're just at the whim and mercy of their knee-jerk reactions and they have no idea how to control it. And we really are a traumatized country and it's getting worse. Like I, I'm really sad for our country and just all of Western culture right now. I I agree. And the, like you're saying the, the anger, because I was thinking the same thing. You see more people just angry Mm -hmm. and you're going, why are they so angry? The anger, the, the suicides, the, like you said, the depression and, I'm a child of the 70s as well. And I'm thinking, I don't ever remember growing up this being so prevalent like it is now. And I'm pretty sure, yes, there there were depressed people and things like that. But now it's like everywhere you're turning is like, okay, this person is depressed. They committed suicide, whatever. And I'm going, wow, is the world, you know, just that bad where people just cannot, they're tired. They just can't take it anymore. You know, it's just, it's, it's bad. Yeah, I, I do believe the problem is getting worse. Statistics show that, you know, like epidemic levels of anxiety, depression, that is absolutely getting worse. Um, I think another thing that feeds into it is just how rapidly society has changed since we were kids in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, we have kids, um, my son, for example. Uh, my son was born in the late 90s. And he has always, always, always had a computer in the house. Um, He's always, and he was, I think he was in fifth grade. No, he was in fourth grade because we moved to a, a bigger city than we'd ever lived in when he was in fourth grade. And I was a single parent and I decided that I wanted him to have a cell phone. I'm like, I don't care if it's just in your backpack in this little pocket turned off. I'm going to program emergency numbers in it. Then that way, if something happens, you know, it, I don't care if you get in trouble, tell your teachers that they can go turn your phone on and all your emergency numbers are in your phone. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. but I wanted him to have a phone or that way, if we went somewhere together and we got separated, he had a phone and I had one and he could call me. 
Um, he, and there are kids, you know, obviously that have been born that have always had phones or iPads or gadgets. And what we're finding out, um, and I shouldn't say we, I'm not the one actually conducting the research. Um, the, what they're finding out with research is that EMFs, the electromagnetic fields from cell towers and just all of the wireless gadgets that we have now is creating a toxic load on our system that our bodies are not accustomed to. And that is in part, not all of it, but that's in part, part of what's making us sick as well. Hmm. Wow. I believe that because now everyone is walking around with a phone up to their head or they're looking at it and, um, yeah, it's it's totally different than when we grew up where we had the little rotary phone and the long, you know, curly cord where you right. use it to call. Right. And there are no studies that there were no studies done on cell phones um, that would determine or explain whether or not cell phones could damage us by holding the phone to your ear. And they're starting to realize with research that the the frequency that comes off the phone, especially when it's connected and you're talking to somebody and you have a cell phone to your ear, um, that does affect your brain. It does penetrate your skull and affect your brain. There, um, they've done some studies on adults in the last 10 years. There have been zero studies. There were zero studies done before cell phones were released. And there, to my knowledge, there still have been zero studies done on children. And children walk, walk around with phones in their pockets, on their hips, on their person all day long. And on the iPhone, there's a warning on the iPhone that says, don't carry it on your body or hold it next to your head. (laughs) I don't know about other phones. I have an iPhone myself. Um, Yeah, I have one. Yeah. So, you know, you're better off to to put the phone on speaker and hold it away from you Mm -hmm. or set it on the desk in front of you and talk on speaker or put your headphones in, but don't have it like right next to you somewhere. Right. So let's switch gears a little bit um, and go to your podcast. Yes. And, Mm -hmm. and I think you said you're, you know, your podcast is for people who have experienced some shame and some guilt. Mm -hmm. Talk, tell me about that. Cause I've listened to a few episodes and and I'm, I'm really liking it. Tell me why you decided to do that podcast. Okay. Um, and it relates to a lot of what I've been talking about. Um, and, and it ties into my empowerment strategy program. Um, because one thing I've realized is there's no such thing as a single story. I could, I could do a podcast myself and, and tell stories for hours and hours and hours on end of what my life was like, what I experienced, what I've learned, how I've gotten past it. And, and my story is just a single story. It's not everybody. And I believe that we can all inspire somebody, but we can't inspire everybody. And so it's my goal to bring guests on my show who have figured out in their own way, in their own life, how to get past obstacles and how to, you know, get beyond the shame and the overwhelm and how to navigate their way to finding fulfilling lives. And a lot of the people on my show, regardless of what they do, they really love their life more than, more than not. I don't think it's possible to love your life 100% because we all have those little moments where we're like, ugh. <laughs> 
But I think if we mostly love our lives, that's then we're probably pretty well there. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever you do, if you mostly love it, you're good. And I want my guests to to talk about that because everybody has a story that can inspire somebody. And so the more people I bring on my show to talk about how they got past their shame, how they got past their obstacles, because my story is not going to resonate with everybody. Somebody's story is going to resonate with somebody. Every, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's part of it. And um, I named my show Yes And for several different reasons. Um, and this feeds into the show too. Um, first of all, Yes And, most people are familiar with it through improv. Um, because improv classes, they have a, a yes and game or yes and exercise that you play. And it's the same reason that yes and is becoming popular in spiritual communities and in people who talk about communicating and effective communication. When you're in a conversation with somebody, if you say something and the person is listening to you, and as soon as you're done speaking, the first words out of their mouth are yes, but the yes, but. It implies that what you said um, is not important. I'm going to invalidate it, and I'm going to imply that what I'm about to say is more important and more valid than what you've just said. So it creates this, again, it goes back into that subtle subconsciousness. It creates this subtle subconscious defensiveness in a conversation where we shift from trying to understand what the other person's saying to what am I going to say next and how am I going to respond because I have to win this conversation. It's not that we consciously think that, it's what happens. <laughs> so if we just say yes and instead of yes but, you're not discrediting what the other person said. You're not implying that your perspective is more important than theirs. You're saying yes and and you're adding value to it. So you're completely validating the other person and you're adding another perspective, which takes the defensiveness out of conversations and it allows for more relaxing conversations where we can be curious and start to understand the person rather than being defensive and trying to win the conversation. Um, And then there's the concept of and consciousness and and consciousness is something that um, I like to talk about as well. Because and consciousness is not about either or, black or white, yes or no, right or wrong. It's about being able to expand and have room for both. So think about the yin and yang symbol. It teaches us what we need to know. (laughs) There's a little bit of dark in the light and there's a little bit of light in the dark. And we, in order to be whole, when you put them together as a whole circle, a whole unit, um, we are both light, we are both dark, and we have light within our dark, and we have dark within our light. And so many of us don't want to acknowledge our darkness. We don't want to acknowledge our shadow. We have these dirty little secrets or skeletons in the closet that we don't want people to know about. And it's exhausting to hide that from the rest of the world. And in many ways, we try to hide that from ourselves. And and consciousness is being able to expand your acceptance not only of other people, but of yourself enough to realize that, yeah, I have these, you know, little quirks and little behaviors. And for the most part, I keep it under control. But, you know, every now and then I might bite your head off (laughs) and I'll, I'll catch myself. I'll apologize. Or, you know, I have this thing that I do and I know it's not good for me. Um, but I'm just going to do it. And so I talk about, um, 
accepting behaviors, accepting what your behaviors are. So many times we go into shaming ourselves like, oh, you know what? I know I shouldn't have that second glass of wine, but I really want to, and I'm going to do it. Or I've had a really rough day and I swore I'd never come home and you know drink a glass of wine again after a hard day at work, but I'm going to do it. I call it conscious coping. <laughs> mm-hmm. If you're going to mm-hmm. do it and you've had a hard day and you just don't have the capacity to sit down and meditate, don't beat yourself up for it. Don't shame yourself for it. Give yourself the evening to have a couple glasses of wine if that's what you want to do. You know, give yourself the evening to just say, heck with it. I'm going to Netflix and binge and not do what I want to do tonight. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Be conscious about it. Give yourself that space to do whatever coping you need to do in the moment. And then the next morning, get up fresh and start over with a healthy mindset again. You know what? That is so important because I've started doing that. I'll have goals set. And like you said, I'll get home and say, well, I need to do X, Y, Z. And then I'll say, oh, screw it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going out for a happy hour. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> screw yeah. it. You know, and and that's how it goes. And you're right. And I get up the next day and I say, okay, now I can do the X, Y, Z that I didn't do yesterday. But I stopped beating myself up for it because I used to do it and go, oh, my goodness. Oh, or I have to stay up late and get this done because I was supposed to do it today. No, mm-hmm. it's, life is too short not to enjoy yourself. And like you said, just make a conscious decision. Right. Right. Because a lot of times these behaviors, like coming home from a rough day at work and going to a a glass of wine, those are coping mechanisms because it's self-soothing and it's it's helping our our minds and our bodies to relax in a way that we're not able to do on our own. And not saying it's good, I'm not saying it's healthy. I'm the only thing I'm saying is if you are aware of it, you don't, you know, maybe every now and then just don't beat yourself up. Just do it consciously. Just know, like go in with your eyes wide open. And I really feel like the positivity movement that we've all seen and maybe have tried to take part in, in the last 10, 15 years, like, oh, you can choose happiness and and think happy thoughts or be happy or choose happiness and let go of anger and let go of fear and no, we need fear. <laughs> mm-hmm. Fear yeah. fear can keep us from, you know, going to, well, you know, you heard stories at 9-11. Fear came up so mm-hmm. strong for some people. They didn't go to work that day and that's why they're still with us. Right. And so fear can really be your savior in many instances. And that's why if we can learn to interpret what our body's telling us when these messages come up or whenever you have anger that comes up, what is that anger trying to tell you? It's not about denying the anger or letting go of the anger or getting rid of the anger. That anger is trying to protect you. Your fear is trying to protect you. Make a relationship with it. Figure out what it's trying to communicate with you and act accordingly and your life will really start to turn around because you'll be like, oh my gosh, I get it. That little flash of anger and that little decision that I made really made a big difference in my day. I didn't end up down the rabbit hole and end up in this funky mood like I normally do. So it's really life-changing when we start to learn how to do this for ourselves. And that that goes into like you were saying earlier, your intuition, mm-hmm. your in, and your, and I believe in intuition, instincts, whatever you want to call it, but that gut feeling along with fear are things that like you say can save your life or mm-hmm. keep you from making the wrong turn. And many times we don't listen to it. We just, we kind of think, oh, I'm thinking too much about it or whatever. And we go and do the exact opposite and it turns out not to be so good. Exactly. 
Yeah, exactly. And the the emotions, I've explained this before on how I see emotions because our emotions are trying to keep harmful things out. Um, but then whenever we flip it around to the more feel-good emotions like euphoria and joy and happiness and contentment and peace and fulfillment and all of those things, whenever you experience what that feels like, that's really telling you, hey, this is good for you. Let this into your let this into your life. We want more of this. And let's try to keep that stuff that brings up anger and fear. Let's try to minimize that and try to maximize this. And you know, so it's it's trying to figure out what it's telling you. And does that sound like another system in the body? Like can you think of a system that tries to keep out the bad things and let in the good things? It's our immune system. I mm-hmm. see our emotions as the immune system for our psyche. Wow. Wow. That's actually, that's actually a good way to, um, to look at it. And we are so sick and unhealthy because we don't know how to work with this immune system. If we ignored our physical, physiological immune system the way we ignore our emotional immune system, Oh my gosh. <laughs> and in, and I guess in some ways we do because you see those people who are just chronically sick. Um mm-hmm. they you know and I think we all know at least one person in our life, many of us know several who are dealing with a chronic illness. They're mentally, psychologically, physically, spiritually unhealthy and they're still not exercising. They're still not eating vegetables they're still eating you know a lot of sugars and processed foods and they're they're not even making an effort and we have more control over our health and our happiness and our life than that it's just are you ready to shift and make that decision and take the personal responsibility to do what you need to do for yourself and some people just aren't there yet they're not ready um and they're not willing to take responsibility for their own lives because it's easier it's easier to be the victim and not take responsibility and say, oh, it's all your fault. It's all your fault. It's all your fault. Uh, Because that abdicates action, that abdicates responsibility. And people are afraid of change. They're afraid to do something different in their lives. And that's why when clients come to me, they really need to have that level of awareness because I'm not going to try to force somebody to become aware and I'm not going to force somebody to realize that they need to change or need help. You come to that conclusion on your own, and then when you're stuck and you're not sure how to do it or how to figure this out, then call me and I can help you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow, oh, that's good. Okay, so Jennifer, we're going to go into our questions. Are you ready for those? I forgot good. about these questions. I don't remember <laughs> what they are. Darn it! I feel like I told you. I felt like I should have studied. <laughs> oh, don't worry about it. You'll pass. <laughs> okay. Who or what motivates you? People who are suffering. Okay. Yeah, I want to. I want to help them. <laughs> I've, mm-hmm. I've been there, and I know that there's hope, and I want to. I want to give them hope. It motivates me to keep doing what I do. Okay. What demotivates you? People who tell me what I need to do for myself. You need to do this. You. <laughs> Oh yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, don't oh, yeah, don't get me started on that one. Okay. <laughs> when was a time that something was said or done to hurt you, but it worked out for your good? Oh, 
I got a good little story for this. <laughs> when I was a little kid, my sister, who's eight years older than me, she used to tell me that my parents found me in the sewer and they felt sorry for me. And they, they decided to bring me home and, and take care of me because they felt really sorry for me. And as devastating as that was when I was little, I got to a point in life where I'm like, oh, I hope that's true because I'm not biologically related to these assholes. <laughs> <laughs> There's hope for me yet. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> you you found like you're like oh yes that's that's great. <laughs> like I was I was, I was the child thrown away, but it's good. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> well, I did. That's how I turned it around eventually. Wow. We still laugh about that. I we bring that up every now and then, and we still laugh about it. <laughs> oh, okay, what is your fear? My fear. Oh my gosh! I see people who are publicly humiliated and shamed, and their lives are destroyed on social media. Hmm. And that—that's my fear that somebody's going to misinterpret what I say and take it out of context, and then, ugh. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you don't even have to be in social media for that because people do that just every day anyway. Yeah, yeah. Okay, is there a time when you wished you had done something that you didn't? Oh my gosh, uh, which one? I've lost count. <laughs> oh my goodness, how? Yeah, um, all the times that I didn't speak up for myself and, you know, and really just saying, yes, this is what I want to do or no, this isn't. So many times I just kind of went with, along with what everybody else said or did. I, there, there are so many, I'm not sure I can keep up that I can come up with just a single one. <laughs> I know we all have, a, we all have a lot, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. Okay. Is there a time that you wish you had not done something? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, those times when my friends would call and say, Hey, let's go do this. And, you know, that phone, that what is it? Fear of missing out, FOMO. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I, I would have this fear of missing out. And that goes back to my attachment issues. And I wanted to be included and I wanted to find my tribe. And so I would go out with my friends or, you know, do things that really didn't interest me. I've gone to concerts that I've had no interest in before just to be included. And yeah, I, I've done a lot of that too. Been <laughs> mm -hmm. there. Um, what is your definition of success? My definition of success, uh, I, I really value nature. Um, so I like to have a large yard um, because, and that's what I have. Like I have a ravine lot and I have critters in my yard. Um, I don't, um, I don't like hierarchies. So I do much better being self-employed and I like to create my career around my lifestyle, not vice versa. Um, mm -hmm. and I've been working on doing this for myself for well, since 2008, the last time I got laid off, mm -hmm. and um, it's it's been coming. It it really has. It's has shaped up really well in the last 11 years for me. And 
it's, and I believe it's going to continue to go that way. And to me, this is success to have freedom over my schedule, to have freedom over my life and the choices I make and not to have to answer to somebody who tells me what my schedule needs to be and when I need to show up at a certain place at a certain time or not having somebody say, you need to sit at that desk. Otherwise you're not being productive. Um, success to me is, is, you know, doing what I love and creating my life around that. That was good. How do you recharge? I think it depends on the time of year. Um, in the summer, whenever it's warm weather, I recharge by spending a lot of time on my back porch. Um, and in the winter time, um, I spend a lot of time in front of the fireplace. And it doesn't matter what time of the year, uh, there's usually a cup of tea involved. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so th- those are my favorite ways. Like I, I love to sit in front of the fireplace and to be outside um, and on a daily basis. And then I like to travel as well. So having travel breaks and, you know, just getting out of my house for a few days or a week or so at a time really helps me recharge. Okay. What are you awesome at? Um, I am awesome at, well, I'm good at myofascial release. Um, I think I have a really good understanding of, um, trauma, uh, early childhood developmental trauma. And I think I'm really good at explaining concepts in ways that people can understand it. And, um, I'm pretty good at cooking. Um, and I'm really, really awesome at looking at things differently than most people do. Um, when I talk, I hear on a daily basis, wow, I hadn't thought of it like that. Or wow, you, you really don't think like everybody else. And so I think that's probably my superpower is helping people see situations from different perspectives that they wouldn't be able to imagine on their own. Okay. What legacy do you want to leave? I would like for other people to be able to do that as well, to be able to see situations from other perspectives that they hadn't been able to see before, because that takes us into a level of understanding. Um, And the legacy that I think I would really like to leave um, probably would be to teach people compassion. Um, That's a, that's a project that I have in mind. I haven't, I've started talking about it um, to come up with a series of classes um, designed for holistic practitioners. Um, They can teach them how to be more compassionate in their offices um, because the opposite of compassion is judgment. Mm, And we are so, so judgmental in such subtle ways that we don't even realize it. And I've done classes myself in how to be compassionate. And I see that there aren't enough because the people that I've learned from, there aren't enough of them to go around. So I kind of, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to follow suit. Um, You know, can I become an instructor in that method or is it possible to come up with my own? But that's where I'm headed to figure that out. Hmm. Well, yeah, that's, we, we need more of that in the world just in general, because like you said, people are very, very, very judgy. So that would be good. Yeah. Uh, so you passed the question. Yay. Yay. 
<laughs> See, I told you you would pass. <laughs> pass the questions. So what is one motivational takeaway that you want to leave with the listeners? The biggest motivational takeaway is accept all parts of yourself. Um, so whenever you have these little behaviors or these little moments that when you drive yourself crazy, and I think we all have those moments where it's like, oh, I wish I could just stop doing this, or I hate that I feel this way, or I shouldn't feel this way, or I wish I didn't do that, but that's just who I am. Um, instead of being frustrated and talking about it like it's a problem, accept it. Accept that, okay, this is a part of me, and because usually that's a wounded part. And when people talk about inner child work, those are usually the pieces that show up that cause these behaviors that frustrate us. So if you can accept those parts of yourself, then you're accepting that wounded little child and you're giving that wounded child that still lives inside you. And I guarantee you it's still there. You're giving that child the acceptance that it never got when you were little. You didn't get that for yourself and you've turned around and you've denied that part of yourself the same way you were denied as a child. So stop it. <laughs> Be nice to it. Converse with it and figure out what does it need? What does this angry part of me need? What does this fearful part of me need? And if you can accept it and engage it in conversation like you would a little child, then you'll start to see things turn around. And that's part of the and consciousness. Wow. That's, um, yeah, I, I needed to find you a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so before we wrap up, um, Jennifer, tell the listeners where they can find you. If they need to consult with you or tell them about your podcast, just tell them all where you are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the best way to reach me is send me an email. It's info at jenniferwhitaker.com. And Jennifer is spelled normally, J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R. Whitaker is W-H-I-T-A-C-R-E. So it's info at jenniferwhitaker.com. Um, and if you give me about another week to 10 days, my brand new website will be up, which is www.jenniferwhitaker.com. Um, we just had a meeting yesterday and it's in the final stages. I'm so excited. <laughs> Um, so those are the two best ways to get a hold of me is to, you know, either contact me through my website or email. Um, I am on social media. I'm on Facebook um, under Jennifer Whitaker. Um, I'm on LinkedIn and I'm on Twitter. And I'm not fantastic at um, checking my social media on a regular basis. So email is, is by far the, the best way to get me. Okay. Well, Jennifer, I thank you for your time and you telling us about, you know, the mindset and that childhood trauma that can just make us self-sabotage. And um, hopefully the listeners got a lot out of this. I hope so. Thank you for having me, Trina. Well, thank you. If you're looking for a speaker for your live event or conference, go to my website and read my bio and contact me at bit.ly forward slash book Trina. I hope you have a great week. Until then, remember, if you change your mindset, you'll change your life. Keep striving. Success is a journey, not a destination. You can listen to Trina talk anytime and anywhere 
is available on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, and all other places that you can listen to podcasts. If you like the podcast, please don't forget to go to iTunes to subscribe, rate, review, and share. If you have questions for me or need inspiration on how to go to the next level, tweet me directly at Trina L. Martin.